0: Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 112, Yeltsin Grows Up. Last time, we followed the somewhat traumatic early years of Boris Yeltsin's life. While harsh and tough, it was a typical upbringing during the reign of Joseph Stalin. By 1949, Yeltsin was enrolled in the Ural Polytechnic Institute, also known as the UPI in Sverdlovsk although we know the city by its original and present name, Ekaterinaburg. This was the city that would provide residence for Boris for the better part of 36 years. It was also where Tsar Nicholas II and his family were murdered in 1918. When Stalin took over, he set his sights on making Sverdlovsk a primary industrial hub. Its importance to the general industrialization of the Soviet Union cannot be easily overstated. When the Germans invaded the USSR, the region became the home of many of the factories that were forced to head east ahead of the Nazi wave. When Yeltsin arrived in 1949, the town was riding the crest of a population boom, going from 150,000 people in 1929 to 600,000 in 1949. The UPI was one of the top schools outside of the ones in Moscow or Leningrad. While his monthly stipend was meager, life in Sverdlovsk was good to Boris. It was also a time where the promise of a better life gave everyone hope for the future after the defeat of the Germans. But there were daily reminders of the war as POWs were still being used as slave laborers in town. It was here at UPI where Boris Yeltsin made some deep and long-lasting bonds with a group of fellow students. One, Nina Yosovna Girina, became especially close, eventually marrying Boris. He was also enamored of sports, and volleyball in particular, becoming captain of the school's team. This was another indicator of his immense leadership qualities. Another issue was his repeated conflicts with authority. It was a trait his classmates remember vividly. When Yeltsin graduated from school, he took a trainee job over a foreman's job, which he could have taken, but wanted real-life experience instead. As he put it, quote, I was certain that it would be very rocky for me if any crew leader could consciously or unconsciously wrap me around his finger because his practical knowledge of the job outstripped mine. Year after year, Boris had showed his talents as he moved up the ladder of success. During the time he was a member of the Komsomol, but it seems like it was more that was a needed membership, you might say, just for the use, you know, upward mobility, and not really an enthusiastic joining in a, of an organization because he had a deep-seated belief in it. On September 28, 1956, Boris married his college sweetheart, Nina Garina. The following year she bore him their first daughter, Elena, followed 2 years later by another daughter, Tatiana. Both children were secretly baptized in the Russian Orthodox Church with their mother's, but not their father's knowledge. Nina, like Boris's mother Klavdia, kept her devotion to her religion a secret. The majority of the upbringing of the children was on the shoulders of Nina, much like most Soviet women. She had to balance work and the running of the household. Boris was largely an absentee father, as he remembered it, quote, I must honestly admit I do not remember the details, when they took their baby steps, when they started to talk, or the rare moments when I tried to help raise them, since I worked almost without a break and we would only meet on Sunday afternoons. Nina recalls, If a woman marries and has children, she has to make sacrifices. You can rarely expect a husband to sacrifice anything on behalf of the family. For the man, the big thing is work. I always try to make things go smoothly in the family. In March of 1960, Boris submitted his application for membership in the Communist Party being approved for full membership a year later. He did this to further his career, as is evident by the following comment from a 2002 interview. Quote, More than once they urged me to join. I was doing well at work, and naturally they hung around me all the time. But I always held back. I did not want to bind myself to the party. I did not want it. I had, you see, a gut feeling about it. But then I was in a dead end. I was required to join the party to become chief of the construction directorate. They made me a simple proposition. If you are will to do it, we will promote you. I could still not be a party member when I was a head engineer. To be chief? No. For this, you needed to be a communist. Yeltsin was by the 1960s ensconced in the housing construction field, something that had been severely neglected during Stalin's time. His doggedness and extreme work ethic did him and the people under him well. The Moscow-directed five-year plans caused the need to build things quickly, with quality oftentimes being of secondary importance. As with many who would rise within the Communist Party, Yeltsin needed a powerful mentor, and he found one in Yakov Ryabov. In the mid-sixties, Ryabov moved Boris up the Communist Party ladder, but not without others voicing serious concerns due to his lack of time in the party. But, despite worries, he continued to be appointed to higher and higher positions. Jumping ahead, In October of 1976, Ryabov got a much-desired promotion to Moscow. As first secretary of the Sverdlovsk oblast, he has some say into who his successor would be, but overall party boss Leonid Brezhnev had the formal last word. Evgeny, Korovin, and Yeltsin were the two logical men to take over for Ryabov. While Korovin may have been the safer choice, He was considered to be the weaker of the two men. Brezhnev, no doubt with the support of Ryabov, called on Yeltsin, who passed the test at his meeting with the party leader and was appointed first secretary of the Sverdlovsk Oblast. At age 45, he was one of the youngest party leaders in the Soviet Union in 1976. Ryabov was to look back at the appointment as a grave mistake he would lead the movement to kick Boris out of his post years later. Here he was, a young man by the Soviet standards, a man who was nothing like the apparatchiks who made up the nomenklatura culture, who ran the corrupt government and industry of the day. From what I've gathered about Yeltsin, he likely would have been a highly successful baron of industry had he been born in the capitalist West, as he had that kind of drive and intellect. Instead, he had to find his way through the socialistic morass that was bogging down the Soviet economy during the days of Brezhnev's stagnation era. As head of one of the largest oblasts in the USSR, his job was staggering. Yeltsin had to rule over 30 districts, known as rayons and guide a communist party with over 220,000 members. The Sverdlovsk Oblast's economy was very much tied to feeding the military-industrial complex. Over 350,000 people worked in defense-related jobs, the most of any oblast in the Soviet Union. Included was a plant created for the processing of biological weapons. An inadvertent release of anthrax spores in 1979 killed about a hundred people. Of course, the official reason given was that the victims had eaten, <clears throat> eaten tainted meat. Yeltsin, as first secretary, had an enormous amount of power. No one under him dared question his orders. Only the people in Moscow, and ultimately Brezhnev, could counter his word. His thoughts about the way he yielded power were, quote, I made use of this power, but to benefit others and never myself. I forced the wheels of the economic machine to spin faster. People submitted to me. People obeyed me. And owing to that, it seemed to me, work units reformed better. In 1978, Yeltsin was elected to the Supreme Soviet. In 1981, he became a member of the Communist Party Central Committee. Life was sweet for the Elsins as their living quarters kept getting better and better, going from barrack like conditions in the 1950s to a lavish five room apartment in the early 1980s. While Boris liked to downplay his enjoyment of the trappings of power, he did nothing to refuse it either. The trappings of the position of First Secretary were intoxicating. Foods could be ordered that the common folk didn't even dream of, lest think of ever eating. Leisure activities were also available, especially one of Boris's favorite, hunting. But there was another vice that would also take hold of the ever-powerful Yeltsin, and that would be alcohol. Long a supporter of temperance, when it came to drink, it was everywhere in the halls of power he began to imbibe more and more often. But it did not send any concerns to Moscow, though, as he continued to work efficiently and effectively. His job at the time included suppressing dissidents, a problem that was growing in Sverdlovsk. Oftentimes, though, the culprits who passed out anti-Soviet pamphlets were seldom caught. Yeltsin's other job, was to take directions from his bosses at the Politburo. Boris received an order one day to rid his region of a potential focal point for the dissident movement, and that was to destroy a building on Karl Liebknecht Street in Sverdlovsk, the city once known as Ekaterinburg. The building it was the Ipatiev House, once owned by a Ural merchant named Nikolai Ipatiev. It was the house where the last Romanov Tsar, Nicholas II, his family, and four of his retainers were executed on the evening of July 17, 1918. In 1977, while Yeltsin was away on vacation, the building was destroyed and asphalted over. Whereas, oftentimes, Yeltsin bristled at the orders coming from Moscow, which, by now was being led by Yuri Andropov, Boris obeyed his orders with brutal efficiency. As editor of the magazine Ural, Valentin Lukyanen said, quote, He always knew in advance what decision needed to be taken and moved toward it like a tractor or tank. He spoke very authoritatively and unconditionally. This was the essence of the party's policy. He was a glorious executor of it. But lest you think that Boris Yeltsin was merely an upwardly mobile, play it by the book, communist apparatchik, think again. Oftentimes he did many things vastly different than his fellow oblast first secretaries. What he really did, which was so different, is that he tried very hard to help the common person. As opposed to many, the man rarely wore his many medals and awards publicly, as he felt that many of them had been earned because of the people below him. This was something that sent him apart from other first secretaries. It was kind of what you might call his rebellious streak. Which is why, while there were orders he could not ignore or hesitate, like the destruction of the Apatyev house, he could and did push the envelope elsewhere without fear of losing his position. His grasp of economic realities was way beyond his comrades. In 1982, when the people in his oblast complained about rising prices, he said, quote, prices in the marketplaces depend on supply and demand. In order to lower them, we mostly have to move more farm products to the bazaars and to develop the personal gardens of the province's residents. Then prices will fall. Yeltsin also tried things that were as close to capitalism as anyone could or would dare. He also used and manipulated the Soviet system as well as anyone in gathering as many resources as he could for his Sverdlovsk Oblast. And it was a master manipulation of the system. He knew how to get the raw products that the Oblast needed to finish projects and to get things done. And because of that, many of his harshest critics gave him that. Also, privately, he and his wife Nina began to read banned works like Alexander Solzhenitsyn's book, the Gulag Archipelago. Slowly but surely, Yeltsin began to understand how inefficient the Soviet system was. While Mikhail Gorbachev was seeing this at the same time in Moscow, Boris was beginning to see and understand that reforming the system may not really be possible. He saw the utter stagnation of trying to get anything done in the Soviet Union. As Timothy Colton so deftly put it in his biography of Yeltsin, a concrete problem that increasingly distressed was the top heaviness of the Soviet government. In late communist times, decisions responsive to the local interests awaited years of special pleading with Moscow. Sverdlovsk planners first petitioned the center to approve in a subway in 1963 A preliminary edict was issued in 1970. To get shovels in the ground in 1980, it took entreaties via Andrei Karolinko and a Yeltsin pilgrimage to Brezhnev's office, where Brezhnev asked him to handwrite a Politburo resolution. The first stations did not come into service until 1994. Yeltsin became increasingly popular in the Sverdlovsk region, and he relished it. His bigger-than-life personality made him try things, to make him more loved as well as playing things to the media by calling attention to himself. Interestingly, no one seemed to care in Moscow. In fact, the powers in the capital wished that more of their first secretaries would be as popular as Boris Yeltsin. Maybe then things would get done. Join me next time as we follow Yeltsin from the backwaters of the Urals to the center of power in the Soviet Union, Moscow. There he comes into contact with the man he would ally with, but eventually help to topple in 1991, Mikhail Gorbachev. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I know it's a little shorter than usual, but there's these periods in Yeltsin's life where we kind of have to cut things. And it's this time where uh, we start to see him make a move from Sverdlovsk and head to Moscow and begin his interactions with Mikhail Gorbachev. So I really wanted to end it there so that the next podcast in two weeks will have a nice transition between the two periods of his life. Now, please go over to the blog site at www.RussianRulersHistory.com. That's where I'm rating the 10 worst and the 10 best Russian rulers, with nice long explanations of why I feel they belong on the good or the bad list. And at the end, there'll be a surprise of who doesn't show up on either of the two lists. I know that on our Facebook group, which I recommend that you join, uh... There's been one person who figured it out, which uh, is interesting so far. But please join our ever-growing group over at Facebook to ask questions, leave comments, or make suggestions. Now to, those, to you, those of you who are listening to me on iTunes, please take a few moments to rate the podcast, as it really helps move it up the list of history podcasts. And what's interesting is the anniversary of my Russian Rulers History Podcast is on April 30th. And the way the statistics are looking, that's about the time within a day or two, going by the averages we've had, I'll hit my two millionth download of this podcast. And I really want to thank everybody for showing such enthusiasm with the podcast and uh, all the great comments that everybody has uh, sent to me. Really very much appreciated. So, now as always, das vidania и спасибо bolshoya.